Welcome to Purpose Church. My name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors here and I am thrilled that you are joining us. Whether you've been a part of the Purpose Church family for a really long time or you're just checking it out for the first time, I want you to know that we are one big diverse group of people who are existing and living for one vision that everyone everywhere would follow Jesus. And so wherever you're at in your journey of following Jesus, we welcome you and we're so excited that you're here with us today. Well, we're towards the tail end of a 15-week series looking at the greatest sermon ever preached. And I'm not arrogant enough to think that it's one of my sermons. It's not one of Pastor Glenn's sermons. It's the longest sermon ever recorded preached by Jesus. And it's found in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we are going verse by verse. And it has been such an incredible series to discover together that the way of Jesus is really flipped. It's counter cultural. And that's what makes it such an incredible message for us. Well, today we are continuing in our series, really talking about the why and how behind praying and fasting. To get us started, I want to start with, with an illustration. When you think, when you see this jar right here, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about the time that you have each day, each week, each month, each year. This jar represents your life and the sand inside the jar represents the non-essential things about our lives. It it represents our time on Facebook or Instagram. It it, it represents our time uh, watching Netflix and Disney+. Plus. It it maybe even represents our time studying politics and, and watching our favorite news anchor. Whatever those things are that you do, maybe staying up late and watching ESPN. I don't know what it is for you, but it's those things about your life that are honestly non-essentials. And then I want you to think of the rocks as those big priorities in your life. Here's the danger that I think all of us, me included, fall into. It's that we fill our lives so quickly with the non-essentials. We wake up and immediately check Instagram. We binge watch a new show on Netflix all day long. We are glued to CNN or Fox News or whatever outlet you're into. And we fill our lives with non-essentials. And here's why that's a bad thing. When we begin to fill our lives with non-essentials, it becomes really difficult to pack in the priorities, the big priorities, the the essentials. And in fact, they're barely hanging on. Here's what I want to propose to you. I want to propose that a better way to start your day, a better way to think about your schedule, your week, your month, your year, is to ask yourself this question. What are the essentials in my life? Or better, what is it that God wants to make sure that I include in my life? And I propose to you that reading God's word is one of those essentials. I would propose that praying and fasting, as we're going to talk about today, is one of those essentials. I'd propose that your work and family life are one of those 
essentials, that committing to your life group, committing to serving and being who God has called you to be in this world, those are essentials. And once you have prioritized those, then you can begin to fill in some of those non-essentials. You can begin to fill your life with some entertainment and the things that you enjoy, making sure that your priority, your first priority are the big priorities that God has for your life. And I want to suggest to you today that praying and fasting are those priorities that God desires for you and I to have. Now, I'm not saying, I know I, I brought up the buzzword politics. I'm not saying that politics are a bad thing. I'm just asking you to possibly consider Are they a sand in your life or are they a big rock priority in your life? I'm not saying Disney Plus and I'm not saying sports and I'm not saying Facebook and social media, Instagram and Snapchat. I'm not saying those are evil things. All I'm asking you to consider is what is the priority that they play in your life? Are they little sand or are they like the big rocks of your life? Life. Now, what's interesting is 500 years ago, before there was social media, before there was the internet, before there were smartphones, there were still things to be distracted by. And I love what Martin Luther says about the prioritizing of our faith. He says this, it's a good thing to let prayer be the first business of the morning. Guard yourself carefully against those false, deluding ideas which tell you, wait a little while, I'll pray in an hour, first I must attend to this or that. Such thoughts get you away from prayer and into other affairs, which so hold your attention and involve you that nothing comes of prayer for that day." Friends, my hope is simple. I really hope two things after this message. Number one, I hope that you would see prayer and fasting as a big priority in your life. And number two, I hope that you would choose to make prayer and fasting a regular part of your life. Well, as we talk about prayer and fasting, you probably have a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions. In fact, as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking of something that Pastor Glenn said a few weeks ago. He said that during this whole series, as he's been preparing sermons, he has felt the Lord's conviction and then just shared with us what God has already convicted him of. And I had that exact same experience this week. I felt convicted about prayer and fasting. And speaking of Pastor Glenn, he actually, he, he's preaching at our Montana Kalispell Purpose Church campus today. And so we're so excited that God has called him out there and, and that he's preaching today. Uh, he'll be back with us real soon. But I was thinking about what is prayer and fasting. Let's get some definitions around this. I love what Mother Teresa of Calcutta says. She said, prayer is simply talking to God. He speaks to us, we listen. We speak to him and he listens. A two-way process, speaking and listening. When it comes to fasting, the Eerdmans Bible Dictionary defines it this way. Fasting is deliberate and often prolonged abstinence from something you regularly consume 
or do. Now, what's interesting is rewinding the clock 2,000 years ago as we're studying this ancient sermon from Jesus, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get to a deeper understanding of what Jesus meant and then figure out how does that apply to our lives today. And what's interesting is Jesus actually assumed that his followers would pray and that his followers would fast. I mean, three times, three times in our passage today, Jesus will say, when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray. Two times he'll say, when you fast, not if you fast. And what's interesting is Jesus's assumption actually carries over into today. You see, survey after survey reveals that 90% of Americans report that they pray. The question is, how close are we in our communication and relationship with God as we pray and fast. In other words, are we finding ourselves closer to God, closer to Jesus as we pray and fast? My wife, Sarah, is in the process of writing a book right now. The book is called Raising Prayerful Kids. And throughout the research of this book, she was finding lots of incredible data about prayer. And her editor actually shared with her this astounding fact that for the last 15 months during the pandemic, the word prayer has been one of the number one Googled words in over 95 countries. In fact, the word prayer has been Googled 130% more times than the phrase takeout, right? So in this pandemic, maybe you've participated in takeout. Maybe you've been curious which of your favorite restaurants do takeout. Well, it turns out that 130% more times the word prayer is Googled than even takeout. You see, the world is wondering what prayer is and how it works. It reminds me of when the first time I really remember my prayer life coming alive. And interestingly enough, I wasn't even a follower of Jesus yet. I was skateboarding. I was probably in the eighth grade and I was skateboarding with some friends. And my, my buddy Ryan had been driving. He was driving the car and Mark was in the passenger seat and I was in the back of the truck. And, and we had gone to a skateboard spot and we were driving home. And as we drove home, we stopped at a convenience store and, and we got some drinks. And um, Mark got a Dr. Pepper and Ryan got a Coke and I got a Gatorade. And as we were driving home, Mark finished half of his two liter bottle of Dr. Pepper. And then he came up with the brilliant idea, the not so brilliant idea. He said, guys, what if I throw this bottle out the window? And I remember freaking out and not even knowing who God was at that time, not having any kind of relationship with him. I remember saying, I just know this is a bad idea. And so God, if you're out there, please convince Mark otherwise. Well, it didn't go my way. And Mark decided to tighten the bottle cap to throw that two liter bottle out the window. And as he threw it out the window, it went flying. And I was hoping it would just land on the side of the road, but instead it landed on the hood of a brand new Chevy Silverado. And we began a high speed pursuit down the freeway. And you better believe I was praying like crazy. I was like, I don't even know what to call you, but get me out of this. Help me survive. I do not belong on death row. Please, Lord, save me. I remember in the last ditch effort, Ryan, who was driving the car was in the fast lane he cut over four lanes and exited and the Silverado went past us 
Well, as we were driving home, Ryan and Mark decided we're going to stop at one last skate spot. And I said, guys, get me home. This was before we had cell phones or anything. So I didn't have their contacts saved in my phone, but I had them written on a piece of paper. Maybe some of you remember that, where you'd have your friend's phone numbers written on a piece of paper. And I was like, I can't really block you because we didn't have Instagram, but I'm going to cross you out. Like you're, you're done after this. And they said, no, we just want to stop at one last skate spot. So I remember that there was no one else around. It was totally desolate, abandoned place where we were. And they went skateboarding. And I just decided I'm going to sit here in the car. And again, I had nothing to do. I was just kind of hanging out there. And then all of a sudden, no joke, down the street comes that Chevy Silverado. And I thought to myself, how is this possible? I started screaming to my friends, guys, come back, come back, come back. It was like a James Bond movie. They jumped in the car and, and he put the key in, Ryan put the key in the ignition and it wouldn't start. We were freaking out. And then the Chevy Silverado pulled up right in front of us. And all of a sudden this guy opened the door and got out. And if you could just picture what Vin Diesel's like bodybuilder trainer looks like, that's how this guy looked. He gets out of his car, comes up to the passenger seat, and I'll never forget it. Mark rolled down his window and he said, sir, uh, how can we help you? <laughs> like he, I don't know what he was thinking, but he said, sir, can we help you? And, and he started to describe us. He, he began to use such interesting language, such interesting word choice to describe how he felt about us. Words that mama never called me, that I had never heard before. And I remember thinking, wow, it's I feel hurt and attacked, but it's a rather creative way that you have chosen to describe me. And, but then he finally ended with this. He said, you're lucky. You're lucky that my son's in the car or else I would kill you guys. And I remember just thinking, Lord, thank you that this man procreated. Thank you that he has a child because that's the reason I'm alive today. So you better believe my prayer life was active during those few hours. But the next day and the week after and the month after, not so much. So is prayer and fasting only for times of crisis? What if God intends it for so much more? To begin, I want to talk about the why. I want to talk about why we should pray and fast. Before we get into Jesus' teaching about how to pray and fast, I want to talk about why we should pray and fast. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Look at what it says in uh, verse 17. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Why should we fast? It's because God, and why should we pray? It's because God promises that he will reward us. To which you should be asking the question, what's the grand prize? What is the reward? Well, I think there's at least two rewards that we get when we fast and when we pray. The first one is this. We get the joy of God's presence. 
When we fast and pray, we get the joy of God's presence. Look at what it says in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with the joy in, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God wants to fill you with so much joy through his presence. I think the second reward is we receive God's peace. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter four. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I wanna be clear about this. Paul is not saying Don't be anxious in the sense that don't feel anxiety. You can't really control that. What he is saying is don't sit in your anxiety without bringing it to others, professionals, but also don't sit on it without bringing it to God. That as you bring your worries and concerns, as you pray and as you fast, God promises to give you and I peace. You see, the rewards waiting for you and I is that we would be full of joy in God's presence, and we would actually experience his peace. The other reason I think it's important that we pray and the other why behind praying and fasting is that it reveals the, it's like a thermometer that reveals the temperature of our relationship with Jesus, which is exactly what the 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon said, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. I am not speaking about the quantity of it, for there are some who, for a pretense, make long prayers. No, I am speaking about the reality of it, the intensity of it. Well, before Jesus wants to teach us how to pray, he wants to make sure we understand it's important that we know how not to pray. Because the temptation would be to pray with the wrong motivations and miss out on the whole purpose of praying. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, Jesus begins his teaching on prayer and fasting this way. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus says, let me caution you and warn you. If you are praising to seek the attention of others, if you are praying with all kinds of fancy words, trying to impress God, then you're praying for the wrong reasons. And Jesus says, you'll be rewarded. You just won't experience the kind of reward that God desires for you. In other words, Jesus, I think he's saying here, what we seek is what we get. If you're seeking the affirmation of others, if you're seeking others to think you're some holy person, well, that's going to be your only reward. 
But if you're truly seeking to know God, to be close with Jesus, to grow in your relationship with him, to know how he wants you to handle a situation, you will be rewarded with God's presence and God's peace. So with that set up, let's talk about how to pray and then how to fast. As we begin this conversation, we're going to obviously focus on how Jesus teaches us to pray. And maybe at home you're going, I'm not sure it matters to me how Jesus taught me to pray. I mean, there's lots of people that have talked about how to pray. Why, Why is it significant to understand how Jesus taught us to pray? And the answer is simple. Because Jesus is our savior. Because Jesus is the God of the universe. Because Jesus is like the teacher, the professor, who's giving us all the answers so that we could succeed. You see, Jesus being God is saying, this is how I want you to communicate with me. And this is how I want to communicate with you. You see, we need to not just see Jesus as our savior, but we need to see him as our teacher. I mean, that's what Pastor John Mark Comer says. We need to take Jesus seriously as our teacher, not just our savior. And the reason we take Jesus seriously as our teacher is because he is our savior. His death on the cross and his resurrection, proving that he has power over life and death, that he is the sovereign God of the universe, means we want to take very seriously everything that he has To teach us. It means he wants to challenge and change and even flip the script on how we think about prayer so that we could experience his joy, the joy that comes with his presence, and we could experience his peace. So Jesus is going to give us five steps to follow when we pray. The first one is this step number one personalize. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus says you need to understand that you are talking to a personal God. You're not talking to just some spirit in the sky. You're not talking to some feeling that you have. You're not just talking to nature. No, you are talking to a personal God who loves you, who cares for you, who is sovereign and all powerful and who wants a relationship with you. And Jesus uses the imagery of a father, a perfect, holy, blameless, loving, good, kind, just father. But some of us get tripped up because we go, so can I not pray to Jesus? Or what about the Holy Spirit? Well, what's interesting is in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, Stephen, look, look, look at who he prays to. He says, while, we were, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So honestly, when I, when I pray, oftentimes I begin by saying, my Father, Heavenly Father, I love you and I begin that way. But sometimes when I pray, I call out to Jesus because Stephen did. Now, now what about the Holy Spirit? Well, what's interesting is the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. The New Testament teaches that when somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, literally the Holy Spirit comes and sets up shop inside of us, resides inside of us. So what role does the Holy Spirit 
play. Well, look at what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. You see, sometimes when I'm praying, I'll go, Holy Spirit, I don't know exactly what to say. Holy Spirit, help me to say what I'm trying to feel, what's going on. The idea is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, the Holy Trinity, that as we're communicating, we're talking with God. But Jesus says, I want you to understand him as your father. Now, maybe some of you are going, here's the thing. I don't think, I don't think God's personal. And if he is, I don't think he likes me. I was in a conversation with somebody a few weeks ago who was sitting in my office. And they began to share with me all the pain and hurt that they had experienced in life. And in fact, they said, you know what? I'm, I'm convinced that God hates me. And he began to say, everything in my life is showing me that God hates me. And I had to pause them in that moment. I had to say, I understand that you have experienced so much more pain than I could ever fathom going through myself. But I have to tell you the truth. All that pain is not evidence that God hates you. It's evidence that we live in a broken, hurting world. And that because of free will, we have the option to choose God, but we also have the option to reject God. And when we reject God, we oftentimes not only disconnect from God, but we hurt the people around us. And so the pain and suffering you've experienced is evidence of the brokenness of this world. But if you are looking for evidence that God loves you, you only need to look in one place. Now, of course, God loves us and shows his love for us through creation, through our relationships with family, through good blessings that come our way. Absolutely. But there is one foolproof evidence, evidential way to know that God loves you. And it's this, Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the reality of this. Jesus is all the evidence and proof that we need that God loves us. Jesus died on a cross, absorbing all of your sin, rose from the dead, having power over life and death. And why did he do that? He wasn't in some contractual obligation with us. He did it because he loves us. So friends, I hope this opens some, some, some thoughts for you and some, I hope this opens maybe where there's been some wounds for you in your life. All the evidence you need that God loves you is found in what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so every time you think to yourself, man, God must hate me or God doesn't like me, you look at the cross. You think about the cross and the empty tomb and that is all the evidence and proof that we need that Jesus loves us. And so we can call on God. We can call God our Father knowing that he loves us. Step number two when we pray, not only do we acknowledge who God is and recognize who we're talking to, but step number two, we prioritize. Matthew, Jesus continues in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says when you're praying, you acknowledge who you're talking to. Because here's the thing, I just got to go here for a second. The problem for many of us is that our problems seem so big and our God seems so small. When you start your prayers personalizing God, when you, when you remember that he is your father, when you remember that he is holy and powerful, all of a sudden your view of God gets bigger and bigger, making your problems smaller 
and smaller. But when you're talking to this big God, you need to remember that your goal, that my goal is that his priorities would become our priorities. That his kingdom values would become our values. You see, Jesus says when we pray, we need to remember that it is about God's kingdom that it is about his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, which begs the question, how do we know what God's values are? How do we know what the values of the kingdom are? We get to know God. We spend time in his word. We live in community. We continue to deepen our relationship with God. And as we do, we will understand what the values are of his kingdom. You see, some of the values of God's kingdom are love for enemies. Another value of God's kingdom is extending grace and forgiveness. Another value of God's kingdom is justice and righteousness. Another value of God's kingdom is loving and caring for the marginalized and the poor. It's it's extending love. it's, It's serving and caring for your family, laying down your life for others. Those are the values of God's kingdom. The danger that every single one of us live in is choosing to focus our attention on any other kingdom, on any other political party, on any other ideology and missing our mandate as followers of Jesus to be fully consumed with the kingdom of God. Now, now here's the thing, I'll be honest with you. There have been times in this season where I'm going, man, is, 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 is the church shrinking? Man, it, are, 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 is the kingdom of God being threatened by all the things that are going on in the world? And then just this week, the Lord spoke to me through Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, where it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. The kingdom of God cannot be shaken. When this letter, Hebrews, was written 2,000 years ago, some scholars believe it was originally read by a group of about 20 followers of Jesus, of Jewish Christians, who were scared about forthcoming persecution. And the writer says, you need to know that this kingdom of God is unshakable. And for 2,000 years, across every part of the world, weaving in and through all kinds of different political systems and seasons and times, the kingdom of God has continued, has persisted. To which I need to challenge us and I need to ask us this question. Have you given your life to the kingdom of God or have you given your life to another kingdom? Whose kingdom are you and I building? Because we will spend our lives building a kingdom. It will be our own kingdom. It will be another kingdom or it will be the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, when you pray, prioritize your prayers around the kingdom values of God. Third step is please. This is the moment in our communication with God where we say, please fix my marriage. I mean, look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. This is where we say, Father, please fix our marriage. Please help me find a job. Please repair the broken relationship I have with my kids or my grandkids or my parents or grandparents. Please help me with my mental illness. Please, God, help me with this broken 
career. This, this, this community that I'm a part of, help me, God, please. This is where we cry out to God with whatever burdens we are holding. God desires that you would bring those to him. Step number four, pardon. Jesus continues the prayer and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now he picks back up on this. He kind of doubles down in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Now, every scholar I've read this week has said, Jesus, Jesus isn't saying here that God is holding some ledger and he's looking at all the times you've forgiven and going to wait to the end to make sure that he's ready to give you forgiveness. No, no, no. What, what, it's, what Jesus is saying here is your experience of his forgiveness should so fuel and empower your life that you can't help but forgive. And I recognize even as I'm talking about forgiveness Some of you have experienced some incredibly painful, traumatic things at the hands of another person. For some of you, it's decades ago. For some of you, it's days ago. So I'm not trying to pretend that forgiveness is just some easy thing that you could say, "Ah, I forgive you. No, forgiveness is painful. It's hard. It's costly. But if you're having a hard time forgiving someone for something in your life right now, here would be my advice and encouragement to you. Focus your attention and time on how much God has forgiven you. God has truly forgiven you of absolutely everything. And when you and I obsess about that and lean into that and appreciate that, it'll become so much easier to forgive others. You see, friends, remember that when God convicts you of current sin, Repent and turn away from that sin. See, God is going to convict his people because he wants to be close with us. Because he knows sin gets in the way of our relationship with him. And so he's going to convict us, not so that we would feel guilty, but so that we would turn away from it and run to him. And so when God convicts you right now of a current sin, you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage, and God convicts you of that, the next step is to turn away from that sin. So it's, it's not enough to just say, Jesus, would you forgive me? And then continue to position yourselves in the same places and the same times where those sins take place. No, whatever your sin is, whatever your struggle is, if it has to do with finances or a relationship or gossip or lying or whatever your struggle is right now, the goal is to allow God to convict you, make you aware of that sin, thank him that he has forgiven you, receive his forgiveness, and then repent, which literally means turn 180, run away from that sin. But you also got to be aware of this, that while God convicts so that your relationship with him could be restored, Satan is going to want to guilt you. And here's my encouragement. When Satan guilts you about past sin, you remind him that Jesus already paid for it. So when Satan brings to mind a sin that you've already committed, you go, yeah, that was a bad one. That was a real bad one. And Jesus already paid for it. When Satan brings to mind something that happened 10 years ago, that really significantly hurt people, that that created a chasm in some relationships, And you go, yeah, that was really, really bad. But Jesus has already paid for it. He's already forgiven it. You see, friends, 
forgiveness, it's not meant to be hoarded. Have you ever watched one of those shows, Hoarders, right? Where it's these people who over years and years and years have just collected so much stuff that at one time could have been shared, at one time could have been donated, at one time would have been helpful, but because it has been just locked up in their house, because they've hoarded it for so long, it's become a toxic place. In the same way, forgiveness is always meant to be shared. If forgiveness is not meant to be hoarded, forgiveness is not meant to be something we experience from God and never give away. No, it's much better. It's much better to receive God's forgiveness and then share it with those who need it. But it's hard. It's why John Eldridge says this, you must understand forgiveness is a choice. It is not a feeling, but an act of the will. As Neil Anderson has written, don't wait to forgive until you feel like forgiving because you'll never get there. Feelings take time to heal after the choice to forgive is made. As someone has said, forgiveness is setting a prisoner free and then discovering the prisoner was you. And step five, the final step in Jesus' teaching to us on prayer is provision. In Matthew 6, 13, Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God does not lead his people into temptation. He delivers them. He provides for them. And what Jesus is saying is this, whatever you are facing, let God in. Doesn't matter how hard it is, how painful it is. Doesn't matter how ashamed you are of it. Whatever you are facing, let God in. And then Jesus wraps up his teaching with how to fast. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 to 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I want to encourage all of us to to practice wise fasting. You see, fasting is intentionally foregoing, uh, intentionally not participating in something that we would usually do to focus our attention on God. But it's important that we do that wisely. And you see, fasting from food is not the only kind of fasting. And in fact, it's not always wise to fast from food. For, for example, if you're pregnant, if you're diabetic, if, if you're sick, if you're depressed, if you're grieving, if you're prone to an eating disorder, it's probably not wise for you to fast from food. But it is wise for you to fast from social media or from some kind of entertainment or from some kind of habit that you regularly find yourself participating in so that you could focus. Every time you get that urge and that desire, you could pray, you could connect with God. You see, there's, I think, maybe two reasons that it's important that we practice wise fasting. And the first one is whenever we have to make a big decision, fast when a big decision must be made. Look at what they did in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Fasting was a regular part of discerning big decisions and what God wanted 
his people to do. But it's also important that we remember fasting does not replace justice. Fasting and praying does not replace obeying God and being his people in the world, which is why Isaiah chapter 58, 6 and 10 says this. It is not, is, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noon day. God is telling his people, I want you to pray and fast for the purpose of connecting with me and being close with me so that you could go out into a hurting and broken world as my representatives, as my ambassadors, as my lights, so that everyone would know the goodness of God through his church. And so friends, let's commit to praying and fasting and being the people that God has called us to be.